afternoon, church. Uh, open up your Bibles to the book, book of Ruth, chapter 1, and verses 1 through 7. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Maholun and Chilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left in her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malin and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. I want to emphasize the latter part of verse 6. She had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. I just uh, want to talk to you this uh, afternoon from the subject, the visit. The visit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for not just a word, but a timely word, a word in season. We thank you, my God, that you are faithful to speak. And I pray that as I open up my mouth, this afternoon before your people, that it will be not my voice, though it be my lips moving, but me, your voice speaking into every heart, into every life, fill every word with grace, my God, and I pray that we would leave differently from the way that we came in. Help us to capture your mind in your heartbeat now, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, First of all, uh, I would like us to acknowledge the paradox Elimelech and his family find themselves in. Here they are dwelling in Bethlehem, and in Bethlehem they are experiencing famine. Now most of us probably know that the paradox lies in the fact that uh, in the original Hebrew, Bethlehem it means the house of bread or the house of grain. And in fact, the name Bethlehem itself is a Hebrew derivative of its original name or its ancient name of Ephrath, which means a fertile place, uh, a place that always bears fruit. The land has such a reputation and testimony of being fertile and rich they went ahead and named the land fertile. So it has to have a pretty strong testimony 
for, the, for them to actually name the fertile land fertile. And so when Israel came into the land, they, they looked at everything and they agreed with it. And they called it Bethlehem, the house of bread, the house of plenty, the place where there was no lack, a place of abundance, a place of blessing. That was the promise, the promise of Bethlehem. It was not just a place, it was a promise. It was a testimony. The place and the promise, promise were synonymous with one another. When people thought of Bethlehem, they just thought plenty, rich, full. In fact, even after that, they, they had an Arab name for it, was House of Meat. So everything, all of its name had to do with just bounty, full, rich, plenty. In fact, most of us know Bethlehem for a different reason. For, I mean, first of all, it was the birthplace of King David. But also, uh, it was uh, uh, the, pro the prophet Micah prophesied that the Messiah would also come out of Bethlehem. And so out of Bethlehem, out of the house of bread, came Jesus, the living bread, who said that your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died, but I am the living bread that comes from heaven, and everyone who eats of this bread will never hunger, will never thirst. He who eats this bread will live forever. This is the promise of Bethlehem, the testimony of Bethlehem, the calling of Bethlehem, the destiny and the prophecy of Bethlehem. And anyone who came and dwelt in Bethlehem, they, they came and they built their lives. Elimech and Naomi, they built their lives around that testimony. They built their hopes. They built their expectation. They built their dreams. They built their budget. They built their lives upon the promise of Bethlehem, the house of bread, the house of plenty, the house of bounty. But what do you do when the promise does not deliver? What do you do when the house of bread does not deliver on the bread? What do you do when you expect favor, but they won't even return your text? What do you do when you expect provision, but all you received was more debt? What do you do when you felt God was promising you a promotion and the boss called you in and you thought you were going to be promoted, but you are actually let go? What do you do after you, you said, I do, and then six months later, you wish you didn't? What do you do when you plowed upon the promise and you sowed upon the promise and there is no rain for what you sowed? I know that's hard to think of right now, but that was the circumstance they found themselves in. And the, the, here's the thing, though. I mean, here's the thing about the situation that we talk about these things and we talk about some of the, all these issues that many times exist in the Bible. But the, the situation itself is not so much unique or unusual. Uh, periodic famines 
happened throughout Scripture. They still happen today. It was not something that unusual or something out of the ordinary. There were periodic famines that happened. There were periodic droughts that happened throughout Scripture, just like they do today. What I'm trying to sort of get into your heart is that just life happens, okay? Stuff happens. Sometimes, you know, we, we, we like going after the devil a lot of the time, but Sometimes the devil uses it to give you a message, but really sometimes it's just life happening. Okay? So don't let the enemy deceive you sometimes into thinking that you're the only one that's going through something that no other person is going through. No temptation has beset you except which is common to man. Are you understanding me? You're not going through something that is uncommon with just living life on this earth. You are, you are living life on this earth. Sometimes what the, what, the, what, the, what the enemy wants to do is sometimes what he wants to do, he wants you to, to make you feel isolated and to make you feel alone. He will convince you that you're the only one going through what you're going through. In fact, that's what the enemy really convinced Elijah of. Elijah was a powerful prophet, but being a powerful prophet does not exempt you from life. No matter how anointed you are, you will go through stuff. And he was going through stuff. But the only thing is, he was, he, he was just, he was going around, if you remember, he was on the run from, in the wilderness, running from uh, uh, um, Jezebel, thank you, you preach today. He was running from Jezebel and... And as he was running, he, he got to the mountain, he went, and he was complaining to God. He said, oh, oh, they, they've, they've taken down all of your altars, they have killed all your prophets, and they've rejected your covenant, and I'm the only one left, God. And then he kept telling God, he, he came to him and said, God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who is serving you and trusting you and suffering for it. I'm the only one that's going through this, God. And in fact, even in the previous chapter, he, in chapter 18, while he's talking to the nation, he said, I'm the only one left, the only one believing God, the only one serving God. In other words, I'm the only one going through this. And, and so it was like almost like God got tired. It was almost like God got tired of hearing this. So after he gives him some instructions, at the end of the instruction, he says, by, by the way, Elijah, I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee, who have not kissed Baal, that, that have stayed faithful. So stop telling me you're the only one. In fact, there are over 100 prophets hiding in caves right now. In other words, Elijah, you're not the only one going through it. You're not the only one going through stuff. You're not alone in this cave. You're not the only one. Tell your neighbor and tell them you're not the only one. In fact, just because you see people around you who are not struggling in the same area that you are struggling in, does not mean that they're not struggling in the same level of intensity, just in a different area of their life. Because sometimes all you see is that they have victory in the area you're struggling in. And you said, oh, I just wish I would be them, and, and life looks good where they are. But the problem is, behind the curtain of that victory, you don't see the warfare and the battle and the tears and the struggle that's going on behind the curtain of that victory. Because we are really good in church at portraying 
our breast, we put our best foot forward. We, we show you that part, but we don't show you the tears behind the scenes. So be careful what you wish for, because if you want to take their victory, you also have to take their struggle. <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you, Elijah's in the house, and Elijah lets, <laughs> that, that you're not going through something that is foreign to others. You're not alone in that cave. In fact, Hebrews 2 tells us how Jesus had to be made like us in every way. And because of that, he suffered everything we suffered through. He was tempted by everything we were tempted by. He experienced life. He, he, he experienced death. He experienced thirst. He experienced hunger. He experienced temptation. He experienced betrayal. He experienced all of that. And so then he comes back to his disciples in John 16. He says, fear not, for I have overcome the world. And if I have overcome the world, if I overcome, you overcome. Because the same spirit that is in me also resides in you. You are not alone. And, the, and, if, and if God gave me victory... If he raised me up, you're going to be raised up also. If he gave me victory, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead also lives and resides on the inside of you. You are not alone. Help me preach to your neighbor and wake them up this cloudy day and tell them you're not alone. Yeah. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you may be thrown in the furnace. You may be thrown in the fire, but there, I want here to let you know you are not alone. There is another in the fire with you, and there is a fourth man in the fire with you. And because you are not alone, though you're in the fire, the fire has not consumed you. That's the only reason you're here this morning. That's the only reason you can lift up your hands and worship God and praise God. Because the reason you're able to do that is not because you're not in the fire, but it is because there is, you are not alone in the fire. And though you're in it, it has not consumed you. The promise is not that you're not going to go through it. You are going to go through it. But the promise is that you're not going to go through it alone. The promise is that you're going to go through it, but it's not going to consume you. The promise is that you're going to go through it, but you're going to overcome it because he is with you. Help me again tell your neighbor, say, you're not alone. You're not alone. Hallelujah, you're not alone. Some of you have that phase, I, I, you're wishing that I, that I was going to promise you you're not going to go through it. No. You're going through it right now, so why would I promise you that? <laughs> Are you hearing what I'm saying? But Paul, the great apostle, the great apostle, anointed, raised the dead, cast out demons. But he went through it. But he said this, he said, though we're persecuted, we are not abandoned. In other words, I'm not alone. He hasn't left me alone. And because he has not left me alone, we're struck down and we're not destroyed. We're pressed but not crushed. The same because he, we're not alone. He's there with you. So, no, you're not going through something strange or unusual. I love the scripture where it says, don't think that you're going through something strange, brothers. It's not strange. It's not foreign. It's not strange. But the reason it feels strange 
and it looks strange is, be, is when you put the situation next to the promise. When you contrast the situation that you're in and lay, levy it against the promise you were given, the situation looks like it's mocking your promise. It's not always the situation sometimes you are battling and you're really struggling with. But sometimes you're not just, of course, we're struggling with the situation, but you're also struggling what the situation is saying about what God promised you. It's, it's one thing to be in a famine, but it's another thing to be a famine when you are in Bethlehem, the house of bread. It's like, I don't understand <laughs> what happened to the promise. I, I, I would have been fine dealing and coping with the famine. But not only do I have to deal with the famine, but now I have to deal with the conflict of expectation that the promise creates. The promise creates a conflict of expectation because, because the promise creates this conflict because the promise set my expectation up here. You came Sunday morning and, and Pastor Z, he said flood. And it sets your expectation up here. But then during the week, your reality is something else. Your expectation is here, but what you received was this. And now you're being... There's a tug of war in your heart. You don't know which one to believe and which one to lay your heart upon and which one to rest upon. Should I just say this is my life and accept it or, or should I keep my expectation here? There is this now conflict of expectation. That's why many of us don't want to entertain the promises of God in our life, right? That sometimes you come to church and you're slightly, you, you, you hold back from totally embracing you, 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 you give me, you know, I see some of you, you know, you give you that night, those nice smiles, that amen, it's like a halfway. I don't know if I want to fully take it. I, I, I'll say amen to the possibility of it, but I won't totally go there. And exp because, because we don't want to deal with the conflict of hope. The conflict of being disappointed. We don't want to deal with that, so we have the, a certain reservation. That's why, you know, the... The well-to-do woman that helped Elisha, you remember she, she saw him going back and forth across her, across her lands, across her territory, and she said, you know what, I'm going to do something for this man of God, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to help him, I'm going to build a, a, a room on the roof. I mean, she was well-to-do. I mean, you're building another level of your house just to accommodate the man of God. But she, she had it like that, and she, she did it, and, she, and, she, and he had a place to stay. And, and so Elijah one day, he said, you know, what can we do for this woman? And so, so he said, go ask her, what, can, I, can I speak to the king for you? And she says, no, I got my own connections. I got my own line. I don't need yours. And he said, well, you, you, need, you, need, you, know, you, you need any financial? And he said, no, I don't need anything from you. Don't want anything, don't need anything. And, but her servant, his servant speaks up and he says, well, she doesn't have a child. And he says, and Elisha, I mean, he has to be, he's like, great, bring her. <laughs> and he said, by this time, next, and she said, no, don't go there. 
Don't promise me that. Don't talk to me about that. I don't want the conflict of hope. I don't want to deal with the conflict of expectation and being disappointed. I put that thing to rest. I put that expectation to rest. I put that hope to bed. I don't wake up that hope inside of me. I don't want you. To, I bless you. It's fine. Don't go there. Because the promises of God sometimes are conflicting. So, sometimes we, 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 we talk about it and we like the idea of it. But, but sometimes the promise itself presents its own challenges. I mean, you remember David, right? David was fine with his sheep. He was fine. He wasn't asking for anything more. He wasn't asking to be king. He was, in fact, his brothers lined up for the promise. But he said, no, that's fine. I'll stay here right here with the sheep. He wasn't looking for the crown. He wasn't looking in that direction. He didn't, he didn't have that ambition. It, in, in, in fact, Samuel had to call him and say, we're not going to sit down until he comes. Samuel had to sit there and wait for him. And he poured the oil upon him and prophesied over him. And now, David is looking in a direction he never looked in before. Never considered the palace. Never looked in that direction. But now, the promise creates this expectation. It creates this hope. All of a sudden, he begins to entertain things he never entertained before. He begins to think things he never thought before. He begins to desire things he never desired before. And what I'm trying to tell you, if you are happy with where you are, don't entertain a promise of God because a promise of God will mess you up. The promise of God will unsettle you and, and make you discontent with the world around you. Everything was fine. He was fine with his sheep. But now that the promise has come, he has all this conflict of expectation. All these desires he's entertaining, all these dreams that he was entertaining that he never entertained before. It was the promise that turned his heart. It was the promise that elevated his expectation. It's difficult. It creates a conflict. And, and if, you, if you see, we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story, right? It's easy for us. We, we flip a few pages and, and, and we know what's going to happen. But he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's in the wilderness running from Saul. He doesn't have his sheep anymore, he doesn't have the crown anymore. He's, he, 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 he's, he's now running. All he has is a cave and, and desperation hiding for his life. And he's thinking to myself, what in the world? I was fine with my sheep. I don't have the sheep and I don't have the crown. The promise can test you. Tell your neighbor, he said, the promise can test you. Not only can it test you, it will test you. And so, and we, we know the end of the story, but... but, but well, we don't know the end of the story in our own lives. In our own, that's the, how, how many of you understand that, that, that walking out the promises of God in real time is a little bit uncomfortable? Because, because you don't know the end of the story. It's easy to talk about other people's story that you read. But when it comes down to your story, you can't flip the pages. And we hope, but we, we, we don't have the benefit of just skimming through the pages, because if we knew, then we were fine, right? Then, then we know what to expect. We say, oh, we're going to go through that, we're going to go through that, but in the end, praise God, it's going to be okay. So I'll just sit there and coast. No, it doesn't work like that. A little bit more complicated in real time, in real life. And so, 
coming back to our, our passage with Elimelech, in fact, to add, to add insult to injury, Bethlehem, the house of bread, is experiencing famine, while Moab, a heathen nation, has plenty of bread. It was, I, I, and I was looking it up, they were saying it's about seven days' journey away from Bethlehem. And I'm thinking to myself, in the grand scheme of things, with the situation contrast, it's not far. Just across the lake, they are okay. They have bread plenty, but here, the house of bread is starving while Moab has plenty. And, you know, David said something in, in, in Psalm 73, and he begins to talk about how when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, and he began to saw, he said, you know, I was, I've, been, I've been looking at the wicked, and, and they, they're comfortable, they have, they have everything they want, and they drive what they want to drive, they eat what they want to eat, they look like they have no burdens and no trials and no trouble. You understand, David, don't tell me that you never considered, you're looking at these people who, they didn't pray this morning, they didn't fast last week, but here they are, they're, they're riding in their bends, and they're, and they're fine, and they're, they're getting drunk on the weekends, and they have money to go, I mean, they, they're just living it up. Up, and here you are fasting and praying and trusting God and, and you're like, God, come on. You're in the taxi and you're looking outside the window and you're seeing these people and you're like, God, I don't understand. And David got to that place. He said, I don't understand, God, how you can allow them to prosper the way that they prosper. And then he, at one point he says, in vain, I almost feel like it's in vain I'm keeping my heart pure. In vain I'm trusting you. In vain I'm rising up early. And, and then he, <laughs> and he said, and he said in Psalm 73, he said, let me, he said, let me tell you the, the honest truth. He said, my feet almost slipped. I almost lost my footing when I envied the prosperity of the wicked. And then in verse 16, he says, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. Think about that. He said, forget the reality of it. Just trying to think about it hurts. <laughs> he said, I don't understand. And then in verse 17, he says, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. And it goes on. And he's saying, I didn't understand the end, but for a moment, looking at the present, Weighing things of the present, he said, I almost slipped. I almost slipped. But unfortunately, and maybe a little bit anticlimactic, but where David almost slipped, Elimelech actually slipped. He, he fully slipped. He slipped all the way to Moab. He, he saw Moab prospering, and he said, what's the point on waiting on the promise here when I can just go across to Moab? Why am I here waiting on and believing God here in Bethlehem when it seems what I'm believing for it to happen here in Bethlehem is happening in Moab? And he said, what, why am I waiting? And he, let, me, let me tell you something. <laughs> That's the problem also, the wait. Sometimes the wait gets to us. The wait 
grinds us. Sometimes earlier I was talking about you know that God that God will allow you to overcome and and He's with you and you overcome. Sometimes the real question is it's not it's not that we believe that we don't believe we'll overcome. What we're really wondering is when we're going to overcome. How long am I going to have to deal with this? How long does this famine last? And like I said earlier, the problem is you can't just turn the pages and say, oh, it's going to last two years. Okay, I can handle that. I'll deal with it for two years. I'll hang out and, and we don't know. And the weight grinds us a bit. That's why when it talks about perseverance, perseverance is really, it's about the, the strength to endure time. And, and, and time is the thing. Time is the thing, especially in our, in our generation where all the modern-day conveniences push you to expect things quickly, Right? I get frustrated and, you know, you, with, with the internet and, and the, in, the email does not pop up in two, in two seconds or less. I'm like, come on. After I wait a whole 10 seconds for this one email to, to, to go for <laughs> We're used to this expedient lifestyle. This, and, and it lessens our perseverance of waiting. So you hear a promise this morning, and you're going, you're, you're going back, and you're expecting the promise to manifest by lunchtime. And then you come back and say, ah, the promise didn't work. <laughs> but if you look at scriptures, I'm not thinking, saying things have to take 25 years or, or something, but they may. This is what preachers won't tell you. If I want to get you excited, I'll tell you it's going to happen. Just, just, just get up and praise God, and in 30 minutes, hallelujah, it's going to happen. <laughs> But that's not the reality. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? And sometimes you don't know how long you're going to have to wait. And, and, and sometimes, sometimes let, me, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. I like the Bible because the Bible is sometimes real. Let me tell you the great secret. Let me tell you the great secret. When you don't see the promise manifesting, do you know what you have to do? You have to wait. <laughs> but when you're done waiting, do you know what you have to do? Wait some more. <laughs> I like Ephesians 6. He says, put on the full armor of God. Right? And so you can take your stand against the devil. And it's probably one of the most anticlimactic verses that you'll probably read in scriptures. It says, and then having done everything to stand, stand some more. <laughs> All I can tell you is keep waiting. Tell your neighbor, keep, say, keep waiting. Don't grow weary, weary in the wait. Because what's interesting is that Elimelech, he slipped into Moab, but shortly after arriving in Moab, he got tired of the weight. The weight grinded him out. And so he went to Moab, and there in Moab, shortly after he arrives, Elimelech passes away. He dies. And shortly after that, his two other sons also pass away. 
And now, I'm not saying that God did it. I'm not saying that because the Scripture does not say that. And I, I tend to lean on that he, God did not do it. It was just the consequences of life. It doesn't say why or how or any of that. So, it's not, it's, like I said the last time, no reason to entertain why it happened. But though in this instance, the consequences where it seemed extreme, it does show me a principle that though waiting in Bethlehem was difficult, you're still in Bethlehem. You're still in the promise. And though the wait in the promise can be difficult, it's difficult. They were going through a famine. It was difficult. It was hard. Though, but though it's difficult and hard, I believe there is protection in the promise. That God gives you a certain level of protection in the promise. That there is a grace in the wait. That though it can be difficult and pressing, and, and, but, but I believe that God gives you a certain grace there in the wait. That, in fact, the Bible says that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Why, you, why are you going to have to renew your strength? Because waiting is hard. But it says, if you, can, if you wait upon me, if you can trust me in the wait, there will be a grace in the wait, and you can renew your strength in the wait, and you can walk and not grow weary, you can run and shall not faint, you can mount up as wings as eagle, even in the wait. Tell your neighbor and tell them there's a grace in the wait. There's a grace in the wait. Keep your hope in Bethlehem. Keep your faith there. Keep your heart there. Because it's not all the time being physically present. Because you can be physically somewhere, but your heart be somewhere else. Your faith be somewhere else. Because I know what some of you think, well, well Pastor, I'm here. I, I'm still coming to church. I still go to home care group. I'm still going to Bible study. I still go to fasting and prayer. I, I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. But you can be here physically, but your heart somewhere else. The Bible says that Israel came out of Egypt and they were, they were in the wilderness. But the Bible says in their hearts, they went back to Egypt. So sometimes it's not just getting your, keeping your physical self there. It's keeping your heart there and keeping your faith dependent and hopeful upon the promise. Keeping your heart expected upon the promise. Tell your neighbor, he said, there's a grace in the wait. There's protection there. In fact, you know the parable of the seed in, in, in the gospel, it's, it's interesting because it talks about how the farmer goes out and sows. And, and you know, so it's, he's, not, he's not talking about harvest. He's talking about sowing. But there's a certain level of excitement that comes from that sowing season, right? Because there's a lot of activity, there's, the ground is breaking up, and you're, and you're plowing, and, 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 and you're taking the seed, and you're scattering the seed, and, and there's a, all of this activity happening. And with all that activity happening, there is a, a certain level of expectation and, 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 and excitement about what may happen and what may come. So you're doing all this activity with a great expectation, and it's exciting, and you toss your seed there, and you throw your seed, and there's all this activity, but... After all that activity and the seed goes in the soil, you don't see anything anymore. And now you just go out there and all you just see is just big field of soil, big field of dirt. 
In our generation, you know, you want to run there, and the next morning you want to see a little leaf pop out or something. If you see a little leaf pop out after an evening, probably it's a weed. It's not what you're looking for. And it's a bit anticlimactic, you know. It, it just disappears. There's, there's nothing for you to see. It's, it's all quiet and no activities. And all you have is this field that you're staring at, and you can't do anything. You want to do something. You want to kick the dirt around or do something, but you can't do anything. There's nothing to do. The activity is over. It's all quiet. You can't see anything. You can't hear anything. But you know what I realized when I look at the previous verse? That it talks about the seed that was not in the soil, that just was on the surface level. And it says the birds of the air came and plucked it away. And I realized that sometimes the reason you can't see anything is because it's in the soil. And when it's in the soil, it's protected. And what I'm trying to tell you is that many times the reason that you're in the weight is because there is protection in the weight. There's a protection there. Because if you could see it, it's vulnerable. You may be happy that you can see something, but it's vulnerable. In fact, Jesus, you remember Jesus. We all remember Jesus, right? Savior of the world. Jesus, when he was born, oh man, it was revival. The heavens opened. Angels were singing and prophesying, and they came to shepherds, and they said, they said, blessed are you today, unto you a child is born, and a son is given, and, and a savior has come. And I mean, it was, it was angels were appearing everywhere, visiting everyone. There was a star shining and lighting on the manger. There were wise men coming. There were kings stir. I mean, it was just. <sighs> but after all of that, Heaven is funny. <laughs> it just went quiet. Not, no, no, no hiccups, no, no more goosebumps, no more angels appearing. I'm sure the shepherds are wondering, what was all of that about? Did we see what we really saw? I think I just dreamed it up. I mean, just quiet. No more angels, no more miracles, no more wise men appearing, no more. It's just quiet. It's quiet. We have one little blip on the radar. It says, I think age 12, age 11 or 12, he comes and he appears at the temple and he's teaching. And then it's almost like God said, no, 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 no. Come back. And and for 18 years, it goes quiet. Absolutely quiet. But you know what I realized? There was protection in the weight. Because if you remember, when all of that, that excitement and all that stuff was happening, he was running for his life. Herod was trying to kill. I mean, it was, it was all, they were all on the run for their life. And sometimes there is protection in the weight. God is trying to give, he's trying to protect you. The reason sometimes he does, he says, shh, be quiet. I know you can't see anything. I know you, you're waiting, but there's protection in the weight. Tell your neighbor and tell them there's protection in the weight. There's protection in the weight. But just because it's going silent does not mean that there's not stuff happening. You can't see it in, the, in there, but there's roots growing. 
that the seed is taking up nutrients from the ground. There's unseen growth. That's what the last testimony we have of Jesus, that the Bible says he grew in stature. He grew in favor. He grew in, the wis uh, in wisdom. He was growing in the weight. Tell your neighbor and say there's a blessing in the weight. But sometimes to protect that growth, God has to hide you. And you have to wait. Hallelujah. And so, so the Bible says that the, everyone passed. But at some point, the Bible says that around 10 years later, and we pick this up in verse, I believe it's in verse 6. It says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. The first thing I want you to see is that it's not just that God visited them, but it's how they visit, it's how God visited them. That he visited them by giving them grain. And I got excited as I sort of connected this with what Pastor Z was sort of sharing with us. And uh, this sort of, under the unction of this prophetic message, he was talking about the visitation of God. And I got excited because I realized that how much we limited our perspective of how God visits us to what can happen to a, in a church service. But, but God doesn't only give us visit us by giving us a good church service. He visits, he visits us by going to the places where we live. Going to those places where we live. Going to the, our places, our finances. Going to our place of struggles. Going to our place. The Bible says he visited them. Not by laying hands and oil and all, and all that's good. But he, he says he visited them by giving them grain. By giving them substance. By blessing their stuff. By providing the rain. That was the form this visitation took. And it's interesting, that word visitation, I was studying it in the original Hebrew. It's, it's, the original Hebrew word is plakad. And I was trying to study the implications of that word. In the process, but in the process of my study, I, I began to understand something. Then God began to speak to me through the process of my study um, in the middle of it. And... Because that word pakad has a sort of a wide range of meanings. And, and basically, in some respects, has an insinuation of someone returning. Someone coming back. Therefore, sometimes you will see that word sort of expressed through, and God remembered Rachel. He remembered. He came back to her. He remembered Rachel. Or God remembered Noah in the boat. But I had a problem with that interpretation. The reason being is that to insinuate, uh, to, to say that God remembered sort of insinuates God forgot. Right? And, I, 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 and even when I read, to be honest, when I read that Noah part, I'm like, man, you're telling me you forgot Noah in there? <laughs> I mean, he was, the Bible says he was the only one there. How could you forget him? You wiped out everybody else. That was the only people there. How could you? And, 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 and. It's sort of, I, said, I said, can God forget? But the Bible says that he will never leave me nor forsake me. So how can I accept that he forgot me? 
And I don't know, and God spoke to me right there, and he wants me, I don't know who this word is for, but God says, I have not forgotten you. I have not forgotten you. I have not forgotten what I promised you. I have not forgotten the words I delivered onto you. I have not forgotten where you are and what situation you're in and what circumstances you're going through. I have not forgotten you. Tell your neighbor and help me, help me uh, encourage them and tell them that God has not forgotten. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten. And it's not that, that God is returning or coming back to something he forgot. But he's returning because of a set appointment for a set cause. It is, it is the same thing that God said to Abraham. He said, I will return to you at the appointed time and Sarah will have a son. You are not forgotten. You're just waiting on an appointment. I want to say that one more time. You are not forgotten. You're just waiting on an appointment. Don't grow anxious in the wait. Don't grow weary in the wait because everything is still on schedule. I said everything is still on schedule. God has not forgotten about you. Everything is still on schedule. He has not forgotten. You're not, you're not waiting for God to remember you. You're just waiting on your appointment. God set a certain appointment and he will return. He will visit you at the appointed time. I know the seed felt like it was forgotten. But the seed was not forgotten. The farmer knows that he will return at the appointed time and there will be a harvest. The seed doesn't know the time. It may felt like it was, what's going on? Did it, did it, does anybody remember me? It felt like I was forgotten in this soil. But the farmer knows at the appointed time he shall return for the harvest. Tell your neighbor, say, it's, it, it, everything is still on schedule. It's just a matter of time. And the Bible says Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she heard, she heard, she heard, she heard, she heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. She didn't see it, she heard it. She heard that the appointed time had come from where she was. Tell your neighbor that this is your announcement at your appointed time. She didn't see it, she heard it. And when she heard it, she heard that, the, that God was visiting, that the appointed time had come for God to visit his people. And she said, isn't God gracious that even in Moab, God said, I have some people in Moab. They left, they left Bethlehem, but I'm calling them back. And the Bible says word reached her, God reached Naomi in Moab that the Lord is visiting his people. And I don't know who I'm speaking to, but God is calling you back to Bethlehem. He's calling you back to Bethlehem. I know you left 
for Moab for a second. You, 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 you got weary in the wait, and, and your heart shifted, and your expectation shifted, and your faith shifted. But I believe that God is calling somebody in this place back to Bethlehem, back to your promise, back to the house of bread. Because God is saying, I'm about to visit Bethlehem, and I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. I want to bring you back to your place. I want to bring you back to your promise. I want to bring your heart back. I want to bring, because I'm going to do something in your life. I'm going to shift things in your life. I know you walked away, but now I'm inviting you back because I am the God who restores. I am the God who redeems. Even when you walk away, I'm drawing you back to where I called you to be. He's calling people back to Bethlehem. In verse 7, it says they were on their way to return to the land of Judah. To the land of Judah. Everybody say to the land of Judah. You're, in your, you're thinking, well, I thought she was going back to Bethlehem. She was going back to Bethlehem. But Bethlehem was in Judah. So to get to Bethlehem, she had to go through Judah. So when she heard that God was visiting his people, the Bible says she got up and arose. When, when she heard that God was visiting, what did she do? She what? She what? She what? She heard, she heard that God was visiting his people. And when she heard that God was visiting his people, the Bible says that she arose and went to Judah. Because you have to get, you have to go through Judah to get to Bethlehem. You can't get to Bethlehem without going through Judah. And, the, and what will get you back to Bethlehem is when you turn back and go to Judah. And for those who haven't figured it out yet, Judah means praise. And God says, you're going to have to go through praise to get to your Bethlehem. I put Bethlehem, I put your promise in your praise. And if you want to get your heart back to Bethlehem, you have to go through Judah. And there is something about praise. There is something about praise. There's something about praise that resets your expectation. There's something about praise. When, 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 I, I know sometimes it's easy to praise when the band is up and the choir is singing, but, but sometimes praise is not a feeling. Praise is a decision of faith. And when you really get to that level of praise, when you begin to praise God based upon what he's speaking into your heart, what you're, what you're beginning to do is that you're aligning your heart to his voice. You're aligning your heart back up to his promise. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? And I just feel like God is speaking to somebody in this place, and he's, he, he, he's encouraging you. You may not feel, I know you are in the furnace right now. I know you're in the fire right now. I know you're in Moab right now. But I, it, it may be feel difficult to, to, to think about Bethlehem, but if you begin with praise, if you start with praise, I'll start your restoration with praise. I'll start your return to praise. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? Can we just sniff for the next 60 seconds? If this word is for you, if your spirit bears witness with this word, I just want you for the next 60 seconds, just begin to open up your mouth and begin to give him praise in this place. No choir. This is, this is your word. This is about your promise. This is about your Bethlehem. This is about your house of bread. This is about your family. This is about your marriage. This is about your promise. I want you for the next 60 seconds, just begin to give him praise. 
come back to Bethlehem. I'm doing something. I'm visiting. I'm sending the rain. God has not forgotten. I know it's been a long journey, but God has not forgotten. He has not forgotten at the appointed time. At the appointed time, I shall. I shall. Bethlehem, I have not forgotten. I shall. word is not for everyone but I just have to be a faithful delivery man because I know the word is for someone my spirit bear with witness and so if you see me 
like this is because I, Jeremiah says his word is like a fire shut up in my bones and woe unto me if I remain silent I have to be faithful to the word and tell somebody the appointed time has come you've been in the way but the appointed time has come Jesus had to wait but at some point the appointed time had come <laughs> and he got up from where he was and he went to the Jordan hey Jesus I give you praise you said awake an awakening of expectation and faith my God my God I thank you my God that your word is pricking my God people's spirits and souls today my God that you're bringing restoration my God that just as when your word reached Naomi my God that it, it, it set her my God to arise from where she is my God I thank you my God that may this word my God set my God in an awakening in people's spirit that says I gotta go back I can't remain where I am I can't remain in disappointment and skepticism and I, I have to get up Jesus Father God I thank you that your word performed that which it was intended to do. And we give it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.